Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 558 of the podcast and it is Friday the 18th of June 2021 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking about writing non-fiction and bringing it alive with personal stories with Natalie Sisson. We discuss when writing a book is better than doing a course and how books can bring people tangentially into a broader business. How things have changed since Natalie did her other non-fiction books and her various ways of publishing and how to use book titles to attract the right audience, as well as lots of other topics on the craft and business of non-fiction. And of course, if you need some more guidance around how to write non-fiction, I have a book, How to Write Non-Fiction, an audiobook and a course as well. So you can find those on the Creative Pen at the books and courses links. So that interview with Natalie is coming up. In publishing news, well, the new publishing standard this week shared some interesting numbers from Internet World Stats. There are now 5.17 billion people online, which is, uh, by definition, connecting to the Internet using a device that could also be used to order print books for delivery or directly consume ebooks, audiobooks, podcasts and anything else online. So that is 65, over 65 percent of the world's population is now using the Internet. And what is potentially more interesting for our focus? is that the USA is only 6% of the world's total internet users. Or, as uh, the new publishing standard mark says, 94% of the world's internet users are not in the USA. So 94% are not in the USA. So if you're still (laughs) focusing your entire business on the US, then maybe start considering there might be people in other places in the world interested in your books. Now, obviously, probably if you listen to this show, you're already thinking global. This has been my soapbox always because, of course, I'm not an American and I've never lived in America. Uh, I started self-publishing in Australia and have actually been back here in the UK for almost a decade. Uh, But it's always a good reminder to think about the rest of the world. Now, some people may ask, well, but how do I market my books in other countries? Well, uh, I just went and checked my Kobo map, and I've now sold books in 167 countries in English. And this is mainly because my books are available everywhere. And I always check Kobo because it's the easiest one to check. Um, But also because I use internet marketing. So of course, this show, if you're available in audio, if you uh, have a website online, if you use most social media, you're going to be available and reachable by people in pretty much every country in the world. This show has now been downloaded in 225 countries, which I think is almost every country in the world. And my websites and social media, of course, are driving that in some way and the podcast and everything. So if your books are available everywhere and you are doing some form of online marketing, then that is a good start. Of course, you can do paid ads. You can use, uh, um, I think Amazon ads now has seven countries. BookBub has four, I think, 
um, specifically on five. Facebook has pretty much everything if you like using Facebook ads. But if you just start by being available and also doing your country specific pricing to make sure you're you're not too expensive for the market or too cheap as well, then uh, that should be all good. And BookBub did a recent article with tips for driving international sales. So I will link to that in the show notes as well as the new publishing standard. But I think this is it's always good to think about this. And also, it's never too late to expand your market into new places. Unless, of course, you have signed away world English rights. So traditionally published authors, check your contracts. If you have signed world English, you won't be able to publish in these uh, other markets. But if you do control your rights to other markets, then uh, you might be leaving money on the table if you are not available. If you're indie, you probably are already publishing to a lot of places, uh, especially if you are wide, which we've talked about lots before. And for me, this is all about having a long-term focus. I think it was five years ago, I think I'd uh, sold books in sort of 13 countries and it's just expanded and expanded. And of course, the number of countries has expanded, but the volume of other countries has also expanded. Um, So again, this trend will continue as more and more uh, people buy online and buy from various different places. And this is, uh, yeah, the pandemic has accelerated this adoption in a lot of markets. In other book marketing news, uh, back on Facebook, they are now bringing in podcasts. Well, from June 22nd, so this week as this goes out, um, Facebook is now bringing podcasts directly into the platform. And this is evidence, I think, of the rise of audio specific marketing, which I double down on. Uh, I Facebook is funny because they've always stressed video over audio. And now they're clearly seeing that audio is a completely different segment of the market. And lots of people, me included, prefer audio. So this is going to be interesting to see whether that drives downloads and reach for podcasts in general. And uh, yeah, there'll be, I guess, discussion under there. And again, this will only be a a start. And um, yeah, I'm not quite sure how they will do this, but it is going to be interesting for sure. In my personal update, I've been working on my next arcane thriller, uh, so in first draft mode and still in my new co-working space, so I'm getting used to the new writing location, but so happy to be getting out of the house, especially as they've extended the restrictions here in the UK for another month. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just, when will this be over? Oh, it really does feel that way. Uh, I've also been recording with Mark Leslie Lefebvre for our book, The Relaxed Author, which uh, we <laughs> we mentioned we came up with the idea when we recorded the Wide for the Win episode a month or so ago. And so many of you said that that's what you want to be, that we are doing the book. So we're actually recording the first draft. I've, I've got another meeting with Mark this afternoon. We're sort of doing... Uh, um, 90 minutes at a time of recording material where we're essentially we came up with a list of bullet points and we're discussing the bullet points getting that transcribed into a you know rough draft and then editing our own sections so this is going to be quite a different book what we're trying Mark and I are, are very different in our the way we deliver writing advice <laughs> we're very different people we agree on a lot of things but we um, talk about it in a different way and we write in a different way so we also have audio audiences because mark has the stark reflections on writing and publishing podcast so we are doing this differently so that we can both narrate our separate sections whereas when i've done 
co-writing before, we've almost mashed our voices together to come up with one voice. In this one, we're trying to retain our voices. So yeah, we will do a show when we finished on the creation process and publishing and um, how we're doing the audio and stuff like that. Now, I don't usually work on two books at the same time, but because this is a fiction and a nonfiction and they're very different in the way we're writing and also uh, different parts of your brain, really, I think... Um, I also have a couple of other boxes open. I, I do feel a little bit <laughs> not relaxed about having so many boxes open. So I, I have 30,000 words on the shadow book, but I've put that back on hold because of a number of things. But one of them being that I'm also thinking about this travel memoir. And there are some parts of the shadow book I now think might work better within a memoir setting. So I don't really know how they, those books might emerge together and my travel memoir will be based around my Camino de Santiago which will be in 2022 hopefully so it's very interesting especially as this topic is non-fiction to consider how these more emotionally challenging non-fiction books i.e the shadow book and the memoir uh, to be honest the relaxed author is not emotionally challenging sorry Mark <laughs> but for um my shadow book and my travel memoir. These are pretty emotional books. And I can see how it takes a long time to shape the material to figure out the purpose of the book for one's own creative life, but also for the reader. And so those two books might emerge in tandem, hopefully in 2022, because yeah, the shadow book is one of my bucket list items. And so is my travel memoir, I think, and my Camino definitely is. And I feel like, as I've said before, the pandemic has really given us all a kick up the backside around deciding what we want to achieve and focusing on achieving those things because life is super short, let's face it. (laughs) Uh, What else? So that's on the creation side. On the business side, I am going through quite a lot of pain. Sorry, and I wanted to share this. The pain of getting out of ACX royalty share contracts. So if you do the seven-year royalty share contract, if you want to get out of them, you obviously you have to negotiate with your narrator whether they have been paid out and that they're happy. So I have paid a bit of money out to my narrator and uh, and they also can't, ACX can't just change it to DIY deals at the end of the seven years. So even if you end your contract, you essentially have to unpublish them from ACX and you lose the reviews and all of the things. And then you republish as a new DIY project. And because I want to go wide with all my audio, I really want to do this, even though it's quite painful. So this has been going on for uh, a while now (laughs) and it's not over yet. So yes, I stopped doing royalty share deals a few years back when I when the market changed but this is a really good lesson learned for all of us I I hope which is that when you think a certain system is dominant you make decisions about that because you that's what you think you think oh in this situation I can be locked in for seven years because things won't change that much and of course what's happened with audiobooks is it has exploded in the last three years really things have expanded so much and are going to expand even more and uh, I really want to be wide with audio um, for things like chirp in fact I have a chirp deal today bookbub's chirp for audio you can only be in if you are wide with audio and uh, when I've had a chirp deal before I've sold more than seven several months 
income on Audible. So, And also I sell a lot of audio direct. So I need control over my audio products and thus I can't just have a royalty deal, royalty share deal um, that is specific to ACX because it locks you in to um, years worth of um of that contract. So this is just another thing about controlling your intellectual property. And if you think seven years, not much will change in terms of who's dominant in the market. Well, (laughs) things change a lot in seven years. So and I've learned a lot in that time too. So yeah, we cannot know. We literally cannot know. I mean, even the NFT stuff, which I'll talk about again in a minute, but There are things emerging now that will become more dominant in the next decade that if you're not in sort of in control of your rights, you might not be able to take advantage of. So, yeah, just another reminder of all that. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments on recent shows. I did want to bring up this uh, question. So JD has said, fascinating show, the one on NFTs. I love the idea of NFTs, but I am at a total loss as to how to implement them. Do you see NFTs as a completely different ebook format, something Kindle and other e-readers might support eventually? Or do you think NFTs could be somehow adapted into something, etc., etc.? Okay, so I wanted to just bring this up because... When uh, JD says, I'm at a total loss as to how to implement them. I'm actually getting quite a few of these comments uh, when I talked about blockchain, when we talked about NFTs, when I've talked about AI for voice, all of these things that I'm talking about and have been, you know, in the last six months, I've done quite a lot of these in-between episodes about futurist topics. And the point is, I'm really trying to give you awareness of what's happening. In my head, I'm looking at the next decade of what our industry is going to be and the things I'm telling you about and talking talking about are really for me are by 2030 your this will just be mainstream but or maybe even I guess by 2025 or 2027 but you know I'm in my <laughs> mid 40s right now um, and I certainly the, the next decade is should be a bumper bumper decade for me uh, and certainly not some you know I want to change my business with the technologies but it's like 2008 2009 for ebooks it was not mainstream and it was early days and if you like I was publishing ebooks back then there we didn't have hardly anything at the time uh smashwords was there uh, kdp was not even open to international authors which is crazy right now. You just wouldn't even think that. We didn't have draft to digital We didn't have Kobo. We didn't have any of the ecosystem of marketing that we have now. Twitter and Facebook had really just started to go mainstream. So what you have to think is how much has changed since 2008-2009 and where we are now and where we're going to be in another decade. So the reason I'm talking about all this stuff is because, a bit like I mentioned in the intro, don't be signing contracts like what you can do right now, okay, is make sure you don't stop yourself from being able to take advantage of this. So if you're being offered a contract with a publisher or someone that says, I will, you know, I'm signing away world English rights for all formats existing now and to be created for the life of copyright. And this seems to be quite a standard clause now. If you're signing away all formats in the future and all countries and all territories, then I would just say don't sign that because what you're stopping is the ability to do NFTs when they become more mainstream or also um, publish in other countries like I was talking about. So the reason I'm talking about AI for writing, voice um, AI 
voice narration, this NFT stuff, the blockchain stuff is because it's only just starting to happen. And if you ignore it, you might prevent yourself from using it later. So I just, as I just talked about with my signing royalty share deals that stopped me from getting in uh, as soon as I could with things like Chirp and, um, you know, things like if you go through Findaway, you can be on Storytel, which means you can have your audiobooks in Spotify and stuff like this. I'm so frustrated I can't have my entire backlist available in all of these places. It's because I signed a contract and made a decision because I didn't understand what was coming, even though I'm pretty futurist in so many ways. Uh, So there you go. So what I would say is you could right now do an NFT. You can go on OpenSeas, um, O-P-E-N-S-E-A-S. OpenSeas has an article on how do I create an NFT. So you could do it right now. But I think that our readers are not ready. We're not technologically savvy enough, let alone our readers. So I personally, I haven't, I don't, invest uh, in inverted commas. I don't invest in crypto. I don't hold any crypto. I've talked about that I would like to earn some crypto by doing things like NFTs. But I have stayed away from the space. Uh, I'm even though you might think I'm techie, I'm not that techie. You know, I don't want to get into something I I still personally, I'm I just don't think this is mature enough yet. And what's interesting is that at Frankfurt Book Fair, as I talked about in the NFT episode, they are. There looks like there's going to be the first platform launched for the publishing industry by a company called Bookwire that's based out of Germany. So I'm probably going to wait until October. I'm still trying to decide whether I want to do something early just to give it a go. But um, yeah, so what I would say, that's one answer to the question, which is don't worry necessarily about doing something right now. Just make sure you're able to do it in the future. The second one is the question of the files. So uh, I think what people thought was that an NFT is a certain file type, but it's not. Think about it as like a container. So in the physical world, think about it as a um, Uh, a box, like a a delivery box. And in the delivery box, in the container, you can put whatever you want. So there's, there might be the Kindle file, uh, there might be, uh, which will, and the Kindle file and the EPUB and the PDF, for example, might just have a picture of you holding an image that says number one, a special edition or something that would do it. Or it might also have a ticket to an event, or it might be a video. It's something digital that can go within the container of the NFT. So for example, this week, Tim Berners-Lee, this is, I think this is genius for an NFT. So it's the first code of the internet. So Tim Berners-Lee credited really with inventing the internet originally. And his NFT, which is his package, contains the code, the original code that started it all, a letter which uh, talks about it and a video which is a silent video of him typing it out. Now I don't this as I record this this has just been announced but I don't know no one's it's not been sold yet so I think this is going to sell for a lot of money because this is essentially like a container or a package or you know a digital box that contains this uh original source and it will be like watermarked with the special blockchain watermark that says this is the original from Tim and the person who buys this. I I mean, I can see how this is valuable and I think someone was going to pay a lot of money for that. So, but in terms of us, in terms of our 
capacity to do this type of thing. I don't think the reader fan base is quite ready. So as I said, personally, I'm waiting uh, a bit, but I might do one by the end of the year, uh, or certainly I will do one in 2022. I think that will be a definite, but I might do one this year. But as I get, don't think there's any need to rush into things. I think that's really important. You don't need to be like, oh my goodness, if I don't do it now, like I don't believe this is going to burn out. I think the hypey hypey stuff will burn out, but not the the process. For example, people say, oh, I miss the Kindle Gold Rush of 2012 or whatever. Well, who cares? <laughs> I was around in 2012 and I still miss the Kindle Gold Rush. So yeah, you. Um, don't worry about missing the boat on anything. No need to rush. Just take my futurist episodes as trying to just get you to think about the next decade and hopefully we'll all be able to get into this as it becomes more mainstream. And then just a couple of thank yous to people for sending me pictures. I love to see where you're listening to the show. William sent a gorgeous picture from the Isle of Wight of his writing space in the garden. Jerry sent a picture listening from a bike in the gym overlooking a pool. And Karen sent a lovely pictures of Woodland Cemetery in West Philadelphia, uh, a lovely Victorian bur- burial ground. So very excited about that. You can always uh, tweet me at The Creative Pen. Send me a picture of where you are listening to the show. You can email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. And you can also leave a comment on the show notes. You can always just go to thecreativepen.com forward slash. And if you go to blog, if it's the current week or to podcasts, uh, you will find the backlist. Okay, so today's show is sponsored by Drafter Digital, and I'll play a word from the lovely Kevin Tomlinson in a minute. I use Drafter Digital for ebook distribution to Nook and the various library services, as well as some other platforms. And I'm also using it for the first time to do payment splitting with Mark Leslie Lefebvre on The Relaxed Author. So this is fantastic because essentially uh, the books on pre order now for ebooks will do the ebook and paperback through Drafter Digital. And what I was able to do was just put 50% put in Mark's details and in future the income will be auto paid to Mark and uh, it's a great way to do this because at the moment I manually pay my other co-writers and uh, we'll still do the audiobook manually but it will be like a wash up amount whereas the, the probably most of it will come through ebook and paperback so yeah very excited about doing that it's the first time I'm using an auto payment splitting so very pleased to be using draft to digital This type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating this show is sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to new and returning patrons in the last few weeks and of course all of you who've been supporting the show for months and years. You're all amazing and you support my brain and uh, yeah, it it has become very important to me, the Patreon side and uh, if you love the show, you find the show at all useful, please consider supporting with... um, you know, just a couple of dollars a month makes a lot of difference to me. And uh, you you guys know that I, I struggle with self-doubt as much as anyone else and often think there are enough podcasts now in the writing space, so I should just let it go, let other people take on the mantle. But um, you patrons help me continue doing the show. So thanks to Robert, Robin Learman, who is uh, new this week, and you can support the show with just a couple of dollars, euros, GBP, Canadian dollars a month, uh, or a couple of coffees a month if you're feeling generous at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com 
forward slash the creative pen and you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio as well as other goodies. Right, here's a word from Drafter Digital and then we'll get into the interview. Hey, this is Kevin Thompson with Drafter Digital and we love libraries. Everyone at Drafter Digital first discovered a love for reading at their local library and chances are you did too. That's why we've put a big focus on building up library distribution for D2D authors. With a catalog of library distributors that reaches thousands of public, academic, and business libraries all over the planet. Overdrive, Biblioteca, Baker & Taylor, Hoopla. We just keep adding new ways for you to reach library patrons everywhere. And we're including new ways to make some money with innovations such as cost per checkout, a royalty structure that lets libraries check out as many copies of your books as they need, helping you reach eager patrons and get paid as you go. Find out more about how draft digital works with libraries and you at drafttodigital.com slash library dash pricing. Natalie Sisson is an entrepreneur, author, speaker, and host of the Untapped podcast. Her books include The Suitcase Entrepreneur, The Freedom Plan, and her latest is Suck It Up Princess. So welcome back to the show, Natalie. Thanks. I love the way you were grinning when you said the last one. I'm glad it brings a smile to your face. Oh, it does. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about uh, the book very soon. So you were on the show in episode 495, so not too long ago, and we talked about your journey. So we're just going to dive straight in today. So I wanted to ask a question that comes up a lot, which is, you know, people write their nonfiction book and then they're like, never again. (laughs) Uh, So I wondered, like, why did you decide to write another nonfiction book when, let's face it, you have other products and courses are more profitable. So how did you know it was the right time and, and this topic was something you wanted to explore? Yeah, first off, that's news to me that people do say that. So I'd love to know if there's some more research behind people who write Um, non-fiction versus fiction and then get put off the writing process. I I wouldn't even say it was necessarily the right time, but I think part of it was, and you know this, a story sometimes just comes out of you or a book idea comes to you and you just feel like it needs to be written. And, And as an upholder and somebody who likes deadlines and timelines, I really like pushing myself to get things creatively done. I know you turn around books incredibly fast, but I think I'm not too far behind you in that. And then when I have an idea, I really want to take action on it. This one was a little bit different because the circumstances were over in Australia. My partner's father was dying. I was at the hospital. I decided to crowdfund for the book because I I almost needed a distraction. And I'd been thinking about this idea since January. So we're talking about this is in March. Um, When I blurted out, suck it up princess to myself in a park when I was in a funk and a friend said you should write a book about it. it's a great title and I I couldn't let that rest and I was like it is a great title but how do you reverse engineer and write a book about something you just came up with the title for so it was maybe good timing I think and not obviously a very easy time to get a book written yes lockdown helps but also just a We know what was happening in the world at that time. But I had been wanting to write another book since the Freedom Plan. And actually, my partner had also said, hey, aren't you writing another book? You did talk about it for the last year or so. So whenever somebody issues that challenge to me as well, I think it was a combination of all those factors coming together that I just decided, well, there's no better time than now. 
Right. And then I guess more specifically on why a book and mm. not another product, because we both know you can make more money by yeah. doing a course. You could have done more like a self-help course. I'm not sure the title would yeah. have worked for a course, but, you know, it, it is sort <laughs> of motivational. You could have done uh, a summit. You could have done lots of different things. How do you know when yeah. an idea is a book as opposed to a different product? Hmm, I love that question because you're right. All of those things are more profitable, but I don't necessarily know that this book was very strategic. My other two books courses came out of them very successfully. And this one, I haven't got a plan to do a course, but it, it more fits in with my philosophies and experiences on life. And I feel like I've always wanted to write more of a self-help style book just because they have been instrumental in setting up my mindset. And so much of what I talk about in this book has actually come from when I read books back in my teens that then influenced me to go on and do some of the cool and crazy stuff that I've done. So uh, there wasn't actually a lot of strategy behind this. And yes, there were far more profitable things to do, but I don't think that should be the key to writing a book unless you're making a business of it. Maybe that there was some lack of judgment in that, but I also just like doing things for the enjoyment of them and the challenge of them. And also, I got to talk about my courses and my memberships within the book in a way that was really natural because quite a few of the examples or stories I tell fit around that. So in many ways, I still think it will be a book that drives business and new leads, even if that wasn't my intention with it. I, I think that's exactly right. And I guess I wanted to hear you say that because your other books were more strategic and were mm. more real business focused. Well, I felt this one was uh, a lot more emotional. It had aspects of memoir in it, as well yes. as more sort of philosophical things and self-help tips. And But it, as you say, this tangential idea you're sharing yourself and your journey and your it's attraction marketing right people who like mm. it resonate with you and then as you say may go on to buy other products so I want to encourage people listening to like the book doesn't have to be strategically linked to a course <laughs> exactly yeah and I think you know there's time for strategic moves and there's time to just do things for pleasure creativeness innovation and you get to feed both of those things with a book depending on which way you go Yes. So I wondered about how your writing process has changed because, uh, you know, the listeners are all writers too. And the first book can be, you know, what what the hell am I doing? Second book, you're like, okay, I have more of a clue. Third book. But this was a different type of book, as I said. So how has your writing process changed and any tips for nonfiction writers? I'll tell you one thing that hasn't changed is not necessarily having the whole structure of the book planned out and actually being more... Um, just kind of free flow with it. So with The Suitcase Entrepreneur, I'd obviously been talking about a lot of those themes and experiences for many years because I'd been living and breathing it. And I had got a kind of a three-part framework to how I approached it. But I did just write the chapters as they came to me and I picked the ones that felt better to be writing at the time. And then it came together. The Freedom Plan was kind of based off The Suitcase Entrepreneur in my course. So that was much more structured. With this one, I just let rip, which was actually... Super fun and also really fascinating because I ended up taking quite a few chapters out that I had put in and then I was just like, this this isn't necessarily adding to the book, but it was really cathartic for me to write. And as I went, I also realized that it kind of ended up being in five different sections or five different themes. And when I started, it was more the three. I'm a big fan of three. People can remember three. But because this felt more like, as you said, a personal memoir, very honest, very... Yeah, very personal and transparent book. 
plus some self-help and experience and coaching in it. I just kind of let free flow and wrote the chapters that I think were so prominent in my mind that I get asked about a lot or that were really formative experiences in my own life. And then I was able to organize it and arrange it. So that was quite a good lesson and a different way of writing a book. I still wrote it in a similar time frame, around three months, but that's partly also because of lockdown and just because I set myself these big deadlines. And I will say that when it first went to the editor, and I think we might have discussed this, I didn't actually proofread it. I just wanted to get it over to them by that time. It was like right on the deadline. And they actually came back to me, Joanna, and said, hmm, Natalie, we really like how this book is going, but we actually think it needs developmental edits. I actually had to Google (laughs) developmental edits and go, ooh, that's not so good. That's like seriously hacking a book because it's not come together well enough. And I said, look, just can I just have it back for two weeks? Let me actually reread it. Let me (laughs) proof it. And I know that sounds nuts to people who are much more logical about this, but I tend to be like whatever came out, even though I'd culled some stuff, is is what is coming out. And I did reread it and I was like, oh yeah, this needs serious editing and I can trim this and make that much clearer and pull these chapters out and reorder. And it went back to them and they were like, oh, thank goodness, (laughs) we can work with this. So that was a good learning lesson, right? Like actually it really made me sit back and go, hang on, are you a writer or are you somebody who just bashes out content quite (laughs) prolifically. Let's maybe come back to being a writer and taking more. Wasn't that I didn't have care in it, but I think because it was so deeply personal, I almost didn't want to reread it. Whereas the other two books were very easy to reread because it was taught and coached. And this was very much more about my, my life. So I had to do some kind of editing on myself. Uh, This is a brilliant lesson learned, by the way, and it it totally shows the difficulty of memoir because you were emotionally connected to the material, a lot of the material obviously is personal. And so you were like, I'm done, that's me, it's gone. And you sent it out. (laughs) And this is why one of the biggest recommendations with this kind of material is to put it in the drawer, uh, you know, to Mm. and to wait. And that's what happened. By the time it came back to you, you had some separation and you could look at it with new eyes. But yeah, there's a tip to people, Mm. definitely with emotional material that you're connected to, it has to go away from you so that you can look at it with those more editorial eyes right yeah I love that and had I known that or listened to you more I probably would have done that but (laughs) it it happened anyway so that was good (laughs) well you'll know you'll know for the future because Mm. I think what's interesting uh because I you know we've known each other kind of uh, from afar online for like a decade or something and I think when the suitcase entrepreneur came out I I see a lot of entrepreneurs obviously I know a lot of online entrepreneurs who will write one book and that will be their book that goes with their brand or whatever. And then I feel like some people get the bug for writing Mm. and other people don't. And what I see with you with this book is a real development and quite a shift, I think, in your style of writing and your ability to access a lot more of your history and emotional stuff. And I I think you're in. I don't think this will be the last book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. And I think you're right. I'm really curious about different formats and different genres and and actually, yeah, really fulfilling this as something I do more of. So there's definitely more books in me. I don't think I can quite get to a 30, but I'm really keen to (laughs) just produce a book, you know, every couple of years and, and make it really intentional and about topics that I'm learning or teaching or curious about. Mm. Well, then on that emotional side, because I know how hard it is, what 
Were there any things holding you back? Was there any resistance to sharing? You you mentioned some of the chapters you took out. Was Mm. that because they were too emotional, too raw, or because you felt they really didn't serve this particular topic? I left the really raw ones in there, which was a big deal. But no, they were just like, they just weren't good enough, actually. I think they, you know, the story maybe wasn't that exciting or it just didn't need to go in there. Actually, I will say one that I did pull out was when I, got a job just a couple of years ago because there was something still there that maybe I hadn't processed about why did I do that after, you know, in between 10 or 12 years of entrepreneurship. And also I realized it was probably quite a new story to me and maybe I wanted to let it sit for a bit, whereas a lot of the other stories have happened over the past 10, 15, 20 years. And then a couple of the other ones just didn't feel uh, like they really added to the value of the book or that I'd maybe repeated a topic and this was a different format of the same topic. So I just chose the better chapter. But other than that, I, I really did leave it all on the line. As you said, I mean, it's a very, it is a very personal book. And I know a couple of friends were like, oh, Natalie, I didn't know that about you, which is fun, right? Um, and it's cool to hear because it means that I didn't leave anything out. Yeah, it is difficult to share these things, but I think so often it is very valuable for us and also for other people. Uh, so mm. let's get into some of the kind of t- topics. The, the phrase suck it up, you know, it, it implies <laughs> tough love. Just get on with it anyway, even though I'm feeling all these feelings. Uh, but so how, eh, but this is difficult, right? Because it's like, okay, we're in a, we're still in a pandemic as we record this. I still can't come over to New Zealand because of all the travel restrictions. <laughs> and mm. it, I feel like the pandemic has been a time where we have had to have this balance of, look, you know, I have to stay in my area, but, you know, suck it up because we're in a pandemic. And then on the other hand, you need to have self-care. And this is true for the writing journey, the emotional journey, everything. So how do we balance the kind of suck it up, tough love with self-care in, in our lives? Yeah, and I'm so glad you asked because for most people who know me, suck it up princess isn't the kind of thing that I say to them. I I am a tough love, but in a really gentle kind of way coach, but I usually use that more on myself. And I think the interesting thing about this is I figured the title would probably polarize some people. Some people might be offended. Some people might be like, oh yeah, Um, which is different for me as well, because normally I'm not about offending people, but I think there are times you need to take a stance in your life. It's definitely a term that's used more down under. And then I would say over in the UK as well, but for other countries, it's not quite as common. But the irony is that there's so much about self-compassion in this book and about caring for yourself and knowing when to have tough love and exercise it on yourself and knowing when to take a break, to be kind to yourself, to look after yourself, to love on yourself. And yeah, that's the irony of it. There's so much more in this book. It's actually more of a a kind of a motivational pep talk for loving on you. I think it's really important to balance. One thing that is interesting is that when I said that phrase to myself, and then I was actually talking to somebody on my podcast, who's a psychologist, and they said, you know what, I really love this term, because I kind of have it as a mantra now. They said, for all the clients that we see, we're obviously always trying to access more from a compassionate point of view. He said, but there are so many times where this tough love actually would snap them out of whatever they were in, you know, within reason and actually be very compelling advice for them. So that was really useful to hear because it actually has its place sometimes to just snap yourself out of the doldrums, the fears, the imposter syndrome, all those things that we experience and come back to just taking a small definitive action that will allow you to move on. And that's what that kind of phrase 
allows you to do. So I think it's really interesting to find that balance, but it's worked well for me over the years. And I see it in other people when they do it as well. It's calling yourself out. It's taking personal responsibility for where you might be complaining or negative or throwing a whole bunch of reasons as to why you can't do anything. And we all know we're allowed to do that, but it doesn't get us anywhere. So I like it as a mantra for just calling yourself on your own BS and making the most of life. And that's really important for me to instill in others just when I see so much potential in them and I see them not fulfilling it. Yeah, and it, it definitely implies feeling the fear and doing it anyway type of thing. And I, I think with writing a book, like people always say, you must be over all the self-doubt and the fear of failure and fear of judgment. I'm like, no, it still happens every <laughs> single time. But I understand that it happens every time. And I just, I guess I just suck it up and I create anyway. And I, t- as you said, it's taking mm. that small action uh, or big action or whatever you need to do even though you feel like maybe you can't do it maybe you're and yeah sure I might fail you know (laughs) probably will but if I don't do something then I'm just stuck where I am I guess well and also if you don't do anything then you've also failed isn't that ironic like if you don't do anything and you never take a leap and you never step out of your comfort zone and you just rest on your laurels and you don't do anything in many ways you've also failed but you haven't even given yourself the chance to try But I guess one of the problems, and if we take this too far, we get to burnout. And you do have a chapter Mm -hmm. on burnout is not a badge of honour. And I think this is so important. Many writers suffer burnout on a sort of uh, hamster wheel of content production. And you see this in the online space as well. And you talk in the book about having it on book tour for one of Mm. the other books. So what does burnout feel like? And how do we try and spot it before it happens, I guess? and, And how do we deal with it? Yeah, I'm really glad I put this chapter in because I was really surprised when I did get mild burnout and luckily only mild burnout on my first book, The Suitcase Entrepreneur. And you're right, I just, we were talking about before we hit record, was just I was so into the book and, you know, marketing it and doing everything I could to get it out there. I was so excited, first book, all those things. And I just didn't stop and I didn't have this off switch and I didn't realize that I hadn't turned the switch off until I was in Vancouver on the last leg of my tour And some friends were like, Nat, are you sleeping? Like, when did you get a break? Because you just seem really on. And while that's great, um, you must be exhausted. And I I remember going, oh, I actually can't switch off, which was so unlike me. And I was doing like 11 or 12-hour days, even though I was enjoying it. And I just wasn't looking after myself as much as I normally do. I wasn't sleeping great. And they were actually the people who said, you know, you could be heading for burnout. And I think I even remember going, what is that? (laughs) So how it felt at the time, and this is the interesting thing is, it felt like I was superwoman, like there was nothing that I couldn't do. And I was on fire. And that's a great feeling for a while, but it's not sustainable. And it's often means that you're on the edge of about to topple over the crevice and just have a crash landing. And so for me, I was lucky that they caught it. And then I was aware of it to be able to pull back to take more rest to take time out to exercise, to sleep better to you know, meditate to switch my brain off because people who have had it severely have actually got a lifetime impairment. Like it can, you can lead to adrenal fatigue. It can lead to focus problems. It can lead to actually permanent loss of ability to do things, which is really scary when you have it really badly. And I wish more people would talk about it because you can't write that. There's not a lot that people can do apart from resting and continuing to take it easy and operate on kind of a 50 to 60% capacity. 
So I think it's important that that chapter made it in. And as I said, I, I think I had a mild form of it. But entrepreneurs in particular and writers, are, it's really common for us to get it because we are the ones driving ourselves. We are the ones pushing our own schedules and we need to learn how to balance that and make sure that we have time out. And in that time out is when you have your best creativity often. So that's the, again, the the double-edged sword. It's actually a really great idea to take time off from stuff because you'll probably write better and be more creative. Yeah, and I think the time off and even weekends, I mean, I know I struggle with, especially working from home, you know, as a, yeah. and now everybody has this, everyone has had this in the pandemic year, uh, mm-hmm. is the sort of the trying to balance working from home with the rest of your life in your house. And obviously some people aren't even lucky enough to have their own room for their work and they're working in home spaces. And so I think a lot of people are, are coming to this and it's so funny now we're starting to see, I know it's not been the same in New Zealand but here in the UK we're starting to see articles about people really wanting to return to the office <laughs> mm. <laughs> because actually the commute between home and an office and is a sort of mini break between your world mm. your home life and your work and people have missed that and and they've shown that people have worked an extra one or two hours a day throughout the whole mm-hmm. pandemic because they haven't had to commute so it's really interesting that I and I was reflecting on this around burnout like it's even it's just the extra a couple of hours a day that people think oh you know I'll just work till 7 p.m or 8 p.m and and that'll be fine or or whatever you do but you have to schedule more time away from your desk in your life which this is why I do really big walks because I feel like once I've walked at least 20k I don't care about anything else Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah it's so true and you you know me for now 10 plus years I've always been a proponent of the freedom plan, right? Like I do actually live and breathe that. I take freedom Fridays. I take quite a lot of time off. And I actually think that's really helped me to do even more in the time that I do work. And I've always been about attempting to balance more of that work and life and mindset piece. And don't always get it right, but I think I do probably a better job of it than a lot of people I know. And I don't subscribe to overworking and 60-hour work weeks. Like I look at people who are doing that and I've like, you know, admire it sometimes, but then other times I'm like, no, you've got it wrong. I Then I love seeing people who, you know, run a 10-hour a week business at six or seven figures and they've just got it dialed in and they live life fully outside of that and they love the work that they do do. So I love that there's always examples to prove otherwise. And I think it's really important that you're intentional about how you live your life, which is something that I hope comes through in all my books. Um, and that we do take more time to have fun and enjoy life and to really get the richer and finer things out of it. And there's nothing wrong with loving your work and doing a lot of it, but there will be a time at which you'll reach this point of just like, okay, I'm I'm tired of this or it's draining or it's not as much fun anymore. And I prefer for people not to get to that point and to continue loving their work and doing the right amount of it for them and having a life that they love. And then on time off, uh, so you're having a baby, (laughs) surprise. (laughs) And and you also obviously have your successful business. So I wondered, how are you planning? Obviously, you can plan when you're going to need this time off, but you will need some decent time off. And Mm. I'm also planning to take a month to six weeks away in 2022. And for people listening, it's not just about having a baby. It's also, okay, I want to have a longer period of time. How do I set up 
up my business so my income doesn't fall off a cliff and so I, I don't have to answer email every day or whatever. So how are you organizing this period of, of time off? I love that you asked this question because ironically, that's probably my next book (laughs) because I remember saying to Josh um, after I'd finished this one and then we found out we were pregnant, which was really exciting. I mean, we were trying for it, but it all happened super quick. And I turned to him and I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to baby proof my business. And he went, that's a great name for a book. And I was like, don't, because that's how this one came to life, right? But then I thought about it. I was like, actually, what a fantastic uh, reason to interview awesome women entrepreneurs who are mums or expecting about what they did to actually baby proof their business. How did they plan? How did they prepare? And then also how did they feel post having the baby and which point did they go back to work and what worked for them? Because in many ways, like a book project, a baby is a really great deadline in many ways to have to get your very stuff hard deadline. <laughs> a very hard deadline. Yeah. And I was, we were literally at the midwife yesterday because we're at 28 week mark. So we're into the third trimester. And I, I realized I had a giggle as I said, you know, when should I really be maybe just taking some time out? Cause I was planning to take at least three months off post having the baby. Because I realized that I was doing this right work right up until the date. And then I was like, well, that's silly because the baby will come whenever it wants and I need to be prepared. And she's like, yeah, I'd give yourself at least two weeks. Any more than that, you might be twiddling your thumbs. So that actually put it into perspective because that's eight weeks, (laughs) pretty much eight weeks. And I'm like, great. But to answer your question, I have been steadily building up a small but mighty team for the last 12 months. And it's been a real, it's really been on my agenda to find great people and to slowly but surely stop being the block in my business, you know, which we sometimes are as a CEO and hand things over to them and get them to a place where they feel really confident with running my business. I've just recently hired my own virtual assistant. So I do have one, but mainly she focuses on WordPress and landing pages and all those things. But this one will purely be dealing with my email and support email and calendar and really getting her comfortable with essentially being me while while I'm not there. And then I'm fortunate that I've built a business where recurring income as part of my membership is great and important. And one of my big focuses for this next eight weeks is to really dial in a few of my funnels so that they are bringing in revenue on autopilot. And in many ways, it's forced me to look at my business and go, hmm, you do way too much of the things that you actually now need to automate or you're too involved in some of your own projects and you need to step out and actually start bringing other people in. So for example, with my 10K club, I'm looking at hiring some resident coaches to have on board um, and actually replace me during the three months that I plan to definitely be completely off. And like, I mean, completely offline. But then I was like, this is actually a really good practice because I should have probably been bringing these people in anyway, because I don't always want to be the face of it. And I don't always want to be the go-to person as much as I like to be. That's not going to allow me to scale. So it's interesting, especially with this, that I think it's forced me to think about my business without me. And that allows for a lot of creativity and some good creative brainstorming with my team about how to do that. So I haven't got it all set yet, but I'm, I'm excited. Like I think we're working towards it in a really good way. And there's also a part of me that's just like, you know what, if, if, if stuff happens, it happens. And I'm not, and maybe that's partly having a baby. I've taken on a much more relaxed approach. Like I'm just, I'm excited about this new chapter. And if I don't have the same business coming out the other side of it, or if I don't even maybe want this business out the other side, I don't know. I've got options, which I feel quite grateful to have. 
Yeah, I think that's really good. And as you say, you don't know what you're going to want after this period. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not having a baby, but I am like walking <laughs> a really long pilgrimage, the Camino de Santiago. And I feel like I could have the same feeling. I could have the same feeling that I want to change things. Yeah. That also happens when you do these really long walks. So yeah, I think that's him. And I, I love how you've pivoted your brand over the years. Back in the day, you were a single child-free suitcase entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you're settled down in New Zealand with your, with your family. And I think that's important too. And we talked about that, about pivoting your brand in our last interview. But I did want to move more into the publishing side. So in terms of book titles, so I want to come back to the book title. You mentioned yeah. that it, it's, it might be a polarizing title, but it's also gender specific. So mm-hmm. uh, the word princess is gender specific. I know uh, whatever gender is a difficult topic, but I do think that you, I mean, and the subtitle also mentions heroin, I think. Mm-hmm. So it is it, what made you, I mean, obviously the, the title itself is what you said to yourself, but is this a direction for your business? Are you mainly aiming at women or how are you moving in, in that direction? Yeah, it really is a direction for my business and and quite a bold one that I decided to take at the beginning of last year. I think I've been talking about focusing more on women for so long. And interestingly, my very first blog and domain was womansworld.com. And I'm not entirely sure why I didn't stick with that theme, but I think I've, I've always been very inclusive. Like if I'm helping people start and run their business from anywhere and traveling the world, it didn't feel often fair to just exclude Um, guys from that. So I really loved having an inclusive audience during that time. But it was early last year that I decided, you know what, I I am so passionate about helping women. And when women help other women, everybody benefits. So it feels to me like placing my emphasis and my coaching time and my smarts on women and helping them to grow and make more money ultimately has a ripple effect on everybody, not just women. And so, yeah, this book is a pretty much a statement piece to the fact that this is my audience going forward. I still have lots of men in my community, but I'm well aware now that when we write emails, we're talking about, hey, lady, and hey, woman, and using all these terms. And I don't get many emails from the guys going, hey, what about me? But they'll still reply and say stuff, and they'll go, this is great. And this book is definitely written for anyone, but it does have a very strong preference to women stepping up to charge what they're worth, to claim, you know, claim romance, to um, really value themselves, to be more compassionate to themselves, because I think it's something that we don't always do that well. And yeah, it's definitely testament to my my direction of wanting to help women specifically. Mm. Well, that's great then. Well, you said originally it's not it was not a strategic book, but this is a strategic book then. And I would actually encourage people to use things like book titles uh, to make it clear who you want in your community and who your business is for and who the book is for. And um, I think I was thinking of uh, there's a, a brand of I think they're vegan cookbooks here. They're called Thug Kitchen. Have you seen this? <laughs> And I'm like thug kitchen. It's two guys doing (laughs) vegan chefery and they're all, and it's very, obviously it's a very masculine title the word thug is pretty gendered I think and I saw it and I was like that is such great branding they're very clear who they're aiming for and this is similar and I we're in a very complicated gender world right now but I don't want people to be afraid of this of Mm -hmm. making it clear I think that's important too right you want to serve a certain community and you've made that clear 
Yeah, I yeah, and it's it's so funny how long it's taken me to do that because my audience has always been sixty to seventy percent women anyway. But making a stance and standing for it is is really important and something I think as you get older you're much more comfortable doing because you get into your zone of who do you want to help and what impact do you want to make. And it's just been calling to me for so long, and I don't know why I've been avoiding it. So yeah, this is strategic in that respect that it's me coming out almost saying. This is who I support and this is who I want to help because I know it helps everyone else. And then uh, just coming to the the publishing side, you mentioned you crowdfunded the book, which I don't think you've done before because you've had traditional publishing, you've done self-publishing before and crowdfunding is a little bit different. Uh, We certainly emailed over the publishing time as well. So what were (laughs) the lessons that you learned from this publication experience? Oh, well, little known fact, I've actually crowdfunded all three books. Oh, right. There you go. So the very first one I did through Kickstarter, uh, back when Kickstarter was good for crowdfunding books. The second I did through Publishizer, which is specifically for authors who want to publish. And this time I did it through Publishizer again because they've changed their model a little. But I, I do love crowdfunding because I think what it does is it says, hey, this is a book that I'd like to write. Do you think it's worthy of being written? And if you got crickets or nobody really supported it, I think it sends a pretty clear message that you're not writing a book that should be written. So I really love the crowdfunding aspect. And also because one, it provides you with a really good incentive to get very clear on who your book is for, all the things that you put in a book proposal, right? Who's this, who is this for? Why are they going to benefit from it? What other competitors are in this space? How are you going to market this? What's your plan? And you do that way early on before you've even gotten into writing the book often. Then you also receive upfront pre-orders from people who are like, yeah, I can't wait for this book. And then thirdly, you have a massive timeline that you now have to meet because you've put it out there publicly and people have already paid for it. And you've said, and this book will be in your hands by X date. So I personally like it because it's massive accountability and it gets me clear on my marketing channel. And then you have these wonderful people who've pre-ordered and supported who are now coming along with you on the journey, which is just way more fun. And you've got money to spend. You know, I often end up funding my books anyway, but you've got investment from people to spend on editing and publishing and marketing and all those things. So I'm I'm a big fan of it. I probably won't crowdfund the next book but as you just pointed out uh, with the suitcase entrepreneur I self-published that and then it got picked up by a big name publisher four years after it was written when I was actually pitching the freedom plan through an agent so that was a really cool experience the freedom plan I as you mightly mentioned kind of indie published or went with a hybrid publisher on so the cost of the book didn't cost me anything and they took a a percentage of the profits and did a lot of the editing and proofing and distribution. And this one, I actually went back to self-publishing because I just love the freedom that comes with it. Like you're fully responsible for your book and you're also fully in charge of the outcomes of it. So you can choose your creative design. You can choose how it gets to be written. You can choose everything that gets to be in it, the pricing, all those things. And I just wanted to kind of come back and see how much it had changed since 2013 when I did it. And actually come back to the process and you were immensely helpful during this time but it almost felt like relearning this thing that I thought I had nailed back in 2013 (laughs) and seeing how different it was now and it was definitely actually easier I think to to get the book out and the quality that I wanted it to be in um, which was great. 
Yeah, I'm glad you said that. It, it, things have things just change all the time, but there are better tools, better um, distribution methods emerging for everything. Yeah, I, th- I yeah. think it's changed a lot, and it's only getting better. To be honest, I think by the time you you do the next book, I think we're going to have even more options and uh, some very exciting things happening. Right. So, where can people find you and everything you do online? Oh, I would love for them to come visit nataliesisson.com. I'm pretty much Natalie Sisson all over the interwebs, uh, which is great. And I would love for them to listen to my podcast, the Untapped podcast, which you've been on. It very much ties into the book because it's all about tapping into your potential and getting paid to be you. And of course, Suck It Up Princess is on all good online distribution centers and in some bookstores, which is pretty exciting. Thanks to Ingram Spark. So I'd love for people to check it out. Thanks so much, Natalie. That was great. It was so much fun. Thank you. So I hope you found the interview with Natalie interesting and that it's given you some ideas around your own non-fiction books. And remember, if you need some more in-depth guidance, uh, I have a book, How to Write Non-Fiction, an audiobook, and also a course. And you can find those on your favourite bookstore or links on thecreativepen.com. So coming up this week, I have an in-between episode, an interview with Amit Gupta about PseudoWrite, which is the AI writing tool built, well, one of the many AI writing tools built on top of GPT-3, which is the one I really think is super duper uh, for fiction in particular. I'm now using it as part of my writing process and I will be explaining how I'm using it as well as updating you on various AI writing things in that in-between episode coming up this week. And back to the normal schedule next Monday, I'm talking about writing humour with Scott Dickers, co-founder of The Onion website and author of books like How to Write Funny and How to Write Funny Characters. And this is definitely one of those topics I struggle with. I'm not funny. <laughs> and of course, I, I say that to Scott and he's very helpful and I loved talking to him. He's, he's such a great interview and I know you will enjoy our chat, even if you don't intend to write humour as such. It's uh, a light touch can be brought to all of our work, whatever we do. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.